Thank you for leaving that on for me, Nick. Uh, I'm going to read the, the scripture this morning. So this is Philippians 4 through 9. Okay. All right. Um, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guide your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Thank you. All right, I'm on. Yay, I'm on. Yeah, Nick said uh, maybe we'll get out early, and I know Nate's over there going, my gosh, that thing, that is some thick paper right there. Don't feel, don't worry about it, man. I'm at the point now I have to print it out in like 16 fonts, so you'll be all right. As Nick said, I'm Randy Rush. I am the executive director of the Courage Center, and we are plugged in as part here of Emmaus, and we're excited to be here with you today. If you're joining us online and uh, you're, you're like, man, I was really hoping the other guy, so was I. <laughs> yeah. So, but here's what we got, right? So, um, We've been in Philippians for quite a while. You're going to hear a lot of themes today that are probably similar to themes you've heard from Nick because we've been in this book for a little bit of time. And um, so I just, uh, you know, there are certain themes that keep going through. One of them is joy. But you remember this is a letter. And like, you know, letters, they have a certain format. Uh, some of you may know I was in the Navy. I uh, spent uh, six years in the Navy, spent four and a half years on the USS Saratoga, which was an aircraft carrier. And... Um, we used to have this plane that would land on the ship called the Cod, the carrier onboard delivery. A little C2 Greyhound had propellers, and it would land. And that, that ship, that plane, had special meaning because that's what carried the mail. And there was actually a channel on the TV. We, you know, we didn't have, like, we had, like, a couple of channels on the TV. But one of them was trained on the flight deck at all times. Dudes would leave their TV on, on the flight deck channel all the time, just so they could see when the cod landed. And they knew, well, if the cod landed here, it'd take them this long to unload it. It has to go down to where they process the mail. Then we have to send that person down here, and then that person will bring all the mail back here to our shop. And they would time it and be sitting there waiting when the guy would come back and go, the whole place would be full. Because we didn't have cell phones. When I was in the Navy, it was back when the dinosaurs were on the Earth before the Earth was cool. It was a long, long time ago. We had no satellite phones. We didn't have Internet. We didn't have satellite access. Those letters, we lived for those letters. And Susan and I were dating. Uh, the first cruise I did, uh, the second cruise I did, we were engaged. And, man, when I would get those letters, you know, first off, it's, oh, hey, how are you? I love you. It's so great. You know, then she gives the meat, tell me what's going on. And then at some point in the letter, she'd get to the point and she would say, well, I guess I better go. I've got to study or I guess I better go. It's getting late. And that would kind of tell me that it was the end of the letter coming up. That's where we are here. Paul has written these letters. It's got the, as Nick said, grace and peace. It has this introduction. It has the meat of the letter. But at the end of the letter, he gets into these exhortations. 
and it sounds real churchy, and it sounds like religious language, and it would be easy, just like those phrases in our letters, to say, oh, I'm at the end. I'm going to kind of start folding it up and stick it back in the envelope, and I'm not going to really pay attention to that. It'd be easy to look at these words at the end of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi and go, Oh, he's in all that churchy language stuff, you know. Him pray, rejoice, rejoice, praise and pray and pray, all that stuff like that. Guys, this stuff is meat on the bone right here. That what we're going to go through in the first in these next few chapters. It's only three or four verses, but there's so much in it. Y'all, y'all with me? You're going to hang in there with me? All right. So Paul says at the beginning, verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always, and I say again, rejoice. Now, bear with me. We're going to Greek out a little bit today, okay? we got some words that we need to study. And this first one that is translated joy or rejoice is karate, or the root word of it is kairo, which means gift. Now, bear with me, right? Some of you, where's Bridget? So some of us, in more liturgical traditions, we had the communion. We didn't call it that. We called it the Eucharist, right? And the Eucharist was a gift, a good gift. And we celebrate that. So when Paul uses this word for joy, and he uses this word for rejoice, think about it that the root word of the Greek is a gift. It's a gift. Now this comes from a guy, think about it. He's telling them to rejoice. He's talking to them about gifts. And this is coming from someone, where is he? He's in prison. And he's writing to a church who, why? Just because he wants to talk to them and tell them how much he loves them and how great they are? What's happening in Philippi? There's some dissension. Remember Nick talked a few weeks ago, these mutilators of the flesh? There's a lot of things going on in Philippi. There's a whole group of people that have come in and told them, hey, to be Christians, you have to get circumcised to adult men. That's a conversation I'd love to see. Hey, here's our church. We're going to start this new church. <clears throat> you guys who aren't Jews, want you to come and join our church? Hey, we got some good news for you. You'll love it. We've got these two people that are leaders in the church, and they've had some kind of dissension. These people live in a town where it's tough to be a Jesus follower in the Roman Empire. There's a lot going on to this church. And Paul's writing it from Rome in prison. He says, rejoice. Rejoice. I say again, rejoice. Look, this isn't some kind of toxic positivity. This isn't, hey, you just force yourself to be happy no matter what. This isn't, hey, I got this Jesus thing I keep talking about, and I can't really be a good Christian if I don't have this happy face and walk around all the time and act like everything's great. That's not what this is, right? This has deep, deep significance. Paul is telling these people who are going through these things, he himself is in prison. He said, for you to be rejoicing, for you to have joy, If that word comes from the Greek word for gifts, then what you have to do is I want you to be aware. Rejoicing and having joy is being aware of all the gifts that are around you. What are you talking about? Did you wake up this morning? Did you have a house that you woke up in? 
Do you have hot water in the shower? Is there nothing better than hot water in the shower? Man, I would have really been bad in the days before we had hot water. I would have been dirty and stinky because I cannot stand cold baths. When I was in the Navy, sometimes we would get the water and the voids all mixed up and the jet fuel. We'd, we'd pump water in a place that had jet fuel before and you'd take a bath and take a shower and something feels sticky and you'd smell like jet fuel all day long. Now, we had 5,000 men. There were no women on the ship. It really didn't matter. You know, when we were out to sea, man, you know, we'd shoot that thing. Well, you know, for some people it might have mattered, right, Jerry? <laughs> Then, sometimes it would be all hot water, so hot water would be scalding. You had to shoot it at the top and let it hit up at the top and bounce back down on top of you to take a shower on the overhead. But we had water. We had hot water. Paul says, look, be thankful of all the gifts that you have. You want to have joy? You have breath. You have people in your life. You have grace, you have mercy, you have reconciliation, you have the love of God, you have all of these things in your life, you have people in your life. This isn't fake happy that Paul is talking about. This is alert awareness. Alert awareness. It's wake up. Wake up, look around, and see all the things that are going good around you that you should be thankful for. They go, well, wait a minute, Randy. Isn't Paul in prison? Isn't Paul in a bad situation? Of course he is. Of course he is. But even in the midst of that terrible situation, even in the midst of being in prison, Paul realizes that God is always at work. God is always up to something even in the middle of him being in prison. Listen, having joy and rejoicing is not this fleeting emotion. It's not this fake happy. It's not toxic positivity. It's disciplined awareness and taking our eyes off ourselves and realizing that God has got great and amazing things going on in this world and sometimes right beside you in your own life. Henry Blackaby. Anybody remember back in the 90s, Henry Blackaby experiencing God? Y'all remember that study? Man, it was everywhere. Susan and I led it a couple of times. I always, when I do it, I always do this little hand motion because it's, you know, we, we taught this thing so many times. But one of the things that it was, it was about how to discern the will of God. And one of his major points was is that God is always at work. God is not sitting around waiting on us to come along and do something. God is always at work in the world. And sometimes the way that we discern and figure out what God's will for our life is, is to find out what God is already doing and go get involved in that. Amen? Because God's not sitting around and waiting on us. Even in prison, Paul is finding out God is busy. He's got plans. He's got things that's going on. And instead of sitting here and wallowing in that I'm in prison and I really shouldn't be and I can't believe this happened to me, Paul said, hmm, what can I do when I'm here? I'm an evangelist. I go out and I tell people about God. I spread that good news. How can I do that where I'm stuck in prison right here? I got the guards here. Hey, guards, you heard about this guy named Jesus? He's pretty cool. (laughs) 
hey, I know what I can do. I've got all of these churches that I've been involved in and I've started. i got a little bit of time. Hey, if somebody would send me a piece of uh, you know, parchment, papyri, or whatever, I'll write them letters. I'll send out some of my thoughts, some of my theology, and I'll send it out to them. Maybe one day somebody will read them. Probably not, right? <laughs> it's kind of a little bit of a dig. If you don't read it, you'll get it. When you listen to it later, you'll, you'll pick it up somewhere, right? So part of what having joy is and part about what have, being able to rejoice is is to understand that you have to go against the prevailing thought of how the world really works. As a Christian, think about it, right? Paul's in prison. What's he supposed to be doing? I'm in prison. I can't do anything. I can't believe this has happened to me. This sucks. All of these things. That's what the world tells you. You should be bitter. You should be angry. You should sit and stew in that bitterness until it just corrodes you from the inside out. Because that's what the world tells you is the right way to do. But this way of Jesus, this way of joy, this way of rejoicing, this way of looking at all the gifts around you, and appreciating them and being thankful for them says, no, there's a different way. And that different way is that in spite of the situation that I'm in, in spite of the dire circumstances, in spite of whatever this looks like, I don't have this, I just got to put on a happy face and toxic positivity. What I have is, I don't know, maybe I can't even see it, but somewhere in this world today, God is at work doing something. And I bet you he's in the midst of doing something in my life right now, no matter how bad the situation looks, no matter how bad if I can see it or not, no matter what it looks like, no matter what, God's in the middle of this. Amen? Joni Erickson Tata, um, you may not know her. She was a young 17-year-old that dove off the diving board and had a terrible accident, became a quadriplegic. She's got written bunches of books. She has a, a great radio show, Joni and Friends. And she speaks at conferences, and she's, you know, married. And she was at a conference, and one of the ladies at this conference came up to her and said, Joni, you just are always so put together. You always have a smile on your face. You know, lipstick is just perfect. You're dressed perfectly. You know, what's your secret? And Joni sat there and said, I can't believe she asked me that. You know, my secret is somebody has to come in my house. I wake up at 7 in the morning. I hear my husband going out the door, and I have to lay there, and I'm reminded every morning that I cannot move. And then a little bit later, one of our friends, this team of people that we put together come and they help me get out of bed. They dress me. They wash my face. They make me up. They put my lipstick on. And the whole time I'm laying there, I go, thank you, God. I need your smile today. I'm going to go out and I'm going to speak to people and I'm going to be with people. And I need to be reminded today that my life is not just me in this wheelchair. I need to be reminded today, Lord, that you're at work in my life. That you can do things through me even though I can't move my hands and my legs. And thank you for this team of people that are so dedicated to me and so supportive of me and my family. They will come and dress me so this lady can look at me and say, Joni, you're so put together. The second part that I see in all this is that 
Joy and rejoicing are evidence of a deep spiritual formation. Joy isn't just for people who live these great lives. And if you remember from you know, Lake Wobegon, where everybody's happy and all the kids are above average, right? That's not what it is, right? People that have uh, won life's lottery is not the people that get to be joyful and happy. The mystics, all the people, the sages, you read scripture and you read the, the wisdom of old, the people that have seemed to have joy and seem to understand this idea that we should be thankful for all the gifts around us are the people who have experienced suffering. People that have gone through some kind of trauma. People that have understand now because of what they've gone through how fleeting the moments of life are. They understand how to be present in those great stolen moments that they have. If someone in here today and you have survived cancer, some of you here today, maybe you've lost a loved one. You've experienced deep emotional grief and trauma. You're the people that understand how precious the time and the moments are. And you have that joy and you understand that they're gifts, right? 2017, Nathan, our son, was doing 96 miles an hour down I-126, gets pulled over by a highway patrolman. I won't even tell you how many Xanax he had and how much meth he had and how much weed he had. One thing you'll learn from Susan and I, we're open books, right? I mean, I run an organization that helps teens and families with young adults and young adults with substance abuse problems. I don't hide anything. Sometimes I'm an overshare. I'll tell you too much. Nathan gets out of the car, and he gets arrested. Now we have leverage. We got a little bit of leverage. Spends three weeks in Alvin S. Glenn. We send our lawyer down there and said, hey, your mom and dad will get you out, but you got to go to this place for treatment. you got to stay a year. So December of 2017 he'd been there five six months we'd already missed one christmas with him because he had been in treatment and because of the program he was in he couldn't leave for christmas day and we couldn't see him christmas day or christmas eve but we could go december 26th to statesboro georgia you ever had christmas in statesboro georgia <laughs> probably our best christmas we've ever had we rented a house. Susan's brother and his wife and their son came. Matthew and all of us came. We had a fake little pop-up Christmas tree. We brought all the presents. We sat, and we were present. We knew that this thing could go sideways. When you're engaging in risky behavior and you're abusing substances, there's all kind of things that could go wrong. He just had gotten out of three weeks in prison, in jail. I didn't know what the future was going to hold. I didn't know if he was going to be able to beat this thing. I didn't know where he might be five years from now. But all I knew is for those couple of days, we enjoyed each other's company. We played games. We ate. We laughed. And we were present with each other. And no matter what the world and what the future held, for those couple of days, our family and the world was right. Brittany, we had a picture. Were you able to get the picture in? 
Y'all ever play that game where you put those things in your mouth and you have to read sentences and you try to have to guess what the other person is saying? Yeah, pre-COVID. That's right, pre-COVID. But that is joy. That is rejoicing in that moment. Here's our son who basically was in jail, is in a place for rehab, in some kind of program, and we just clung to that moment. So when Paul writes, rejoice, when Paul says, hey, rejoice, this is not just some fake happy. This is, he's writing to people who have been through some bad things. And what he's saying is, even in the midst of those bad things, you get it. You understand how you have to be present in the moment, and you have to be thankful for those gifts around you. Anybody in recovery community here can tell you that, right? One of the things you do is you constantly have in a 12-step fellowship, you have gratitude meetings, an entire meeting that really is focused on being grateful for all the things that are positive in your life. All right. So in the midst of all that, Paul says rejoice, wake up, there's gifts all around you, and you have all these reasons to be thankful and grateful. Verse 5. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Now, when you see this word gentleness here, if you're like me, it's kind of a party killer. You want to say, Paul, you started so strong, man, talking about all this joy and rejoicing. And now you're talking about let your gentleness be evident to all. It kind of reminds me, you know, Rob Bell said it was like a sandwich that had been left out in the rain. Let that soggy image soak in your brain. That's what I want to be. It kind of reminds me like when I get this image of me when I'm old and I'm wearing Depends and I'm, a, you know, the grandfather and, you know, my name's going to be Grandy. Isn't that, see what I did there? G on top of the R, Grandy. And it'd be like the grandkids going, Grandy's just so gentle. And when I hear that, I'm going to be going, oh, that's going to make me feel bad, you know. I'm going to feel weak, Right? Somehow in our macho world here in the U.S., we equate gentleness with weakness. This is not a weak word. This is not a weak word. The Greek word translated here as gentleness is epiikis. And Scottish Bible theologian William Barclay said this word is notoriously difficult to translate, even for the Greeks. The word is loaded. One translation translates it as patience. One is forbearance. Another translated as a moderation or gentleness. And another one said this is an act of kindness in the face of expected retaliation. Think about that. An act of kindness in the face of expected retaliation. To Paul, gentleness is not some wimpy concept. It's strength a non-aggressive strength. Now, Nick has covered this in some of our previous sermons on Philippians, but think about it, right? The, the way of the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, the way that Rome went about holding the peace was through military strength. Their armies, all the people were, hey, we're going to come conquer you, and the way we're going to hold it all together is we're going to place an army there, and then what we're going to do is we're going to basically make you pledge allegiance to us by proclaiming this piece of propaganda called, you know, where, where, where everyone says Caesar is Lord. 
And, you know, when you get conquered, if you want to make way go nice for you, you say, yes, I pay my taxes, and I say, Caesar is Lord, and, uh, you know, I'm good to go. And Paul comes along, and Paul says, No, Caesar and Lord. Jesus is Lord. And the Romans go, Jesus, that Jew from Palestine, I thought we already dealt with him. In a very, very difficult way we dealt with him. Because that's what we do with people, right? We don't really, if someone kind of keeps speaking out and someone really is a problem, we crucify them. Because then you're dead and you're really quiet. You're not a problem anymore. And the Roman Empire said, we've already dealt with that guy. And now there's this whole group of people who, like Paul, are running around and figuring out this whole Jesus way of living really is pretty cool. And instead of the way of life being militaristic and by the sword, this way of gentleness and loving and sacrificial giving and caring about your neighbor, that's a pretty cool way to live. And a few people now are kind of going, I want to live that way. And people all throughout the Roman Empire and these towns that Paul has been before and started these churches are saying, we kind of think this is a better way to live. And Paul's going, that's great, that's great. But guess what's going to happen? I'm in jail. I'm probably going to die because I won't say Caesar is Lord. I say Jesus is Lord. And guess what's going to probably happen in Philippi? If you run around saying, Jesus is Lord. Probably the same thing that's happening to me. You got to remember in Philippi. In Philippi, just like Columbia, it was a military town. A lot of these towns were founded. They would take retired Roman soldiers and they would send them out into these colonies to help found these towns. So you'd have a lot of people that served the empire, served in the army. Just like you have a lot of people here, right? So in Rome, you'd have, a rift, you'd have your chariot, and you'd have your rifty rider sword rack on the back. You'd have, hold your swords, and they'd have something carved into the wood that said, you know, Rome, take it or leave it, right? And then they'd have, in the, on the right-hand side, be carved in the wood, Caesar is Lord, right? That's what you'd see going down in front of you. Just kind of like, like here, you know? But if you're running around saying, hey, Jesus is Lord, that's going to cause some problems. You think some people are going to challenge you about that in this militaristic town? Hey, I got my place to live here because I was a dutiful Roman soldier and I served the empire and I fought in these wars and now I've moved here. And we kind of like it the way things are. And the way things are is Caesar is Lord. So you and this little startup group of people following this Jewish guy from Palestine that we've already dealt with, now we're running around saying, Jesus is Lord, y'all are a problem. And communities don't like problems. Communities like for things to be status quo, the way they are. And Paul knows that these folks are going to have people coming to them and getting in their face and saying things about them and provoking them. So Paul is warning all these people in Philippi, let your gentleness be evident. You're going to want to respond. Our natural reaction when someone challenges me and gets in my face is to be defensive. 
and to rise up and to bow up, right? I mean, I am from Greenville, right? I'm a by God boy. What? I'll whoop your, mm, you know, by God, you know. That's how I was raised. That's what I saw. But what Paul says is, no. Let your gentleness be evident. Be non-reactive. An author recently wrote, we are living in a society of reactivity and overreaction. We react when we receive a text or an email that rubs us the wrong way and we immediately send back a snarky response. We react when a car pulls out in front of us in traffic and we honk the horn, yell, or even worse. We react to our partner or a child when they make a mess with impatience or judgment. We react to world events on Twitter and we read the reactive Twitterverse that abound from politicians and leaders in our country. But we don't have to respond. Did, did y'all know that? <laughs> I know this might be new. I'm going to give I'm, this is what I want you to take away today. I'm going to give y'all permission. You don't have to respond. You don't have to respond. Let your gentleness be evident. Victor Frankl said, between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space is our power to choose our response. In our response, in our response, lies our growth and our freedom. You don't have to respond. When you're doom scrolling, where's Kendall? I learned that word this week. Doom scrolling. That's a new one. When you're doom scrolling and you're reading the news and you're seeing all of this stuff and you're like getting all fired up and your stomach is like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. What's wrong with those people on the right? What's wrong with those people on the left? What is wrong with them idiots up there in Anderson at Clemson? I can't believe they said that. You know, football season's just right around the corner. I can't believe we can let that thing run away from us, can't we? We can let that thing run away from us. Paul is saying, look, this is going to happen to you. This is going to happen to you. If you're living the Jesus way and you're telling everybody that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar's Lord, this is going to happen to you. How do you respond? During the days, the early days of the Salvation Army, William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, and his associates were bitterly attacked by the press by the religious leaders and the government leaders. You know why? He actually preached to the poor. He preached to the prostitutes. He preached to the down and out. And the people didn't like that. And William Booth, they called him general because it was the Salvation Army, you know, and the leader is still called a general. His son Bramwell would read all of these terrible things that were said about his father and his mother and the Salvation Army in the newspaper. And he would cut them out. And he would bring him to his dad, and he'd go, look what they're saying about us. Don't they understand this amazing work that we're doing? Look what they're saying. And General Booth would say, Bramwell, 50 years hence, it will matter very little indeed how these people treated us. It will matter a great deal how we dealt with the work of God. People are watching. How do we respond? How do we respond, right? Don't fly off the handle. Don't fly off the handle. You don't have to engage. And Paul says reason, part of the reason why we can do that is because the Lord is near. Now, when I hear usually the Lord is near, growing up in Greenville, 
you know, the middle of the Bible Belt. I really get that. Yes, Lord is near. We're just passing through. This place is not our home. One day we're going to be out of here and we'll just leave all this place when the rapture comes. And, and I know there's probably some of that what Paul's talking about. But the other part is, what did Jesus say? The kingdom of heaven is what? Here. At hand. Beside you. You're in the midst of it. You're walking in it because God is doing what? He's always Working, always got something on. His presence is always here and it's always near. That's how I can let my gentleness show. I lean in to the Lord and His presence. And we constantly have to be reminded that. Nick said, Hey, I have to be reminded things two or three times. Man, you're a lot smarter than I am. I have to be reminded a million times. It's why songs throughout all of the history of Christianity is always talking about the presence of the Lord. Remember that old song, he walks with me and he talks with me along life's narrow way. Remember that one? Or how about this one? He lives, he lives. Who, who, who grew up in a Baptist church? Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me. All right, right, right. Listen, even the new stuff, Jesus, lover of my soul, the new ones, right? I love you, I need you, though the walls may fall, I'll never let you go. Bridget, I guarantee you that back in the Catholic Church, somewhere when they were doing those Gregorian chants, part of what those Gregorian chants were was somewhere repeating the Psalms of Jesus is right, God is close at hand, He's right here, and He's available to get you through anything. Why do we have to keep saying this? Because we need to be reminded constantly. Because our tendency is to forget and say, I have to do it. I have to do it. Right? Then Paul says in verse 6, how am I doing? Boy, Nate's getting, he's getting anxious. He's getting worried. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. Wait a minute. I'm in, you're in prison. You're writing us to this town where we got this divisive church. We got these mutilators of the flesh. We got all these people who want us to say Caesar's Lord and we're going to be persecuted. Now you're telling me not to be anxious? That's a pretty bold statement. That's telling somebody in all our world today not to be anxious, right? We got a lot going on. This word for anxious is merimonate, and it comes from the word meris, which means parts. And anxious has this root word in basically these various parts which make up both our heart and our mind. And Paul, Paul is basically talking about this is not be anxious. This is your inner life in their mind. There's some people thought maybe he's talking about like Jesus, right? Don't worry about anything, but that's not really the case here. He's not talking about material things. He's talking about our inner life, our mind and our thoughts. Okay. Anybody ever do the midnight marathon? You know what the midnight marathon is? How many people, when you go to bed at night and you lay down in bed, what happens? Your mind starts spiraling out of control. All the things. Do you replay the whole day over again? Every conversation, everything that happened. And now all of a sudden, you're spiraling. You're spinning. I call it the midnight marathon. Do you live with a menopausal woman? How much sleep? How much tossing? How much turning? The temperature's not right. Cut the fan on i got to get up for a while. You know, all those things. It's hard for me to sleep. And I'm laying there with stewing in all of my things. 
I can't believe they said that. I can't believe that money didn't come in. I can't believe that bill is wrong. I can't believe Nathan did this. I can't believe Matthew did that. Oh, my God, Matthew, my youngest son is a Richland County Sheriff. At 22. The boy couldn't even hardly drive, and now he's showing me the other day he was chasing a guy in a, in a um, stolen car. He was doing 130 miles an hour down I-20. 85, 90 down Two Notch Road. Chasing those bad guys, right? Yeah, yeah. And Paul's telling me not be anxious. That midnight marathon starts going, okay? We worry about all of these things, all of these pieces and parts, and they ping-pong in our head. Do you remember the old commercials, the United Negro College Fund? What was, what was the thing? A mind is a terrible thing to waste. I used to work for a guy, and he said, you know, mind's a terrible thing. Mine's a terrible thing. He was from Piedmont, South Carolina. And I thought about it for a while. He's right. We lay in that bed and we start playing and we let that anxiety take over. And it's all of a sudden now we're in the midnight marathon. And then you look over. Now, now some of you do. I know some of you have done this, right? You start thinking, how many hours do I really need before I will really stink tomorrow, right? Um, as, long as, I'm in, as long as I'm asleep by three. As long as I'm asleep by 2, you know, and then if I, okay, do I have to get up at 6.30? No, I can push it. I can do right. Now, if, let's see, do I really have to take that first call? And I go through this, all of this mental gymnastics in the midnight marathon because my mind is going and going and going and all that stuff knocks around up in there. Listen, we work with parents at the Courage Center. One of the things that they come in is, the first thing they say is, I found out my kid is using drugs, how am I doing I found out my kid is using drugs. How do I make them stop? Step one, what do I tell them? It's out of your control. And as long as you own that and you think it's your fault and you think it's your responsibility, you are going to be very frustrated, and so is your kid. All right, let's take a little bit of that in ourselves. We're doing that midnight marathon. We're laying there, and we're thinking about all the things. How many of those things are really yours to control? Very few. What if you shelved and pushed off all the things that you had no control over? Would it change things? Would it change things? Anxiety is worry without purpose, without affecting change as though one spins in circles going nowhere. Paul says, instead of spinning and spiraling, what we should do is in verse 6, end of verse 6, in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. William Barclay again says that thanksgiving has got to be a universal accompaniment to any prayer. That we have to have this feeling that in our life that we're suspended between the past and and the present blessings, right? How do I know that when I bring my petitions and my prayers and my requests to God, that He listens and He cares? I have history. I have examples. Go back and read the Old Testament. What did the, what did the Jewish people do? They didn't get hysterical. They got historical. 
God, the great deliverer who delivered us from slavery in Egypt, who led us through to the promised land. Why do they do that? Because they're reminding themselves that God is still what? Working. So when I go and I start getting into this prayerful mode with God and start walking with Him, I get historical because it reminds me that God has been true to me and faithful to me in the past. And I can take all of those things that I have no control over and I can say, God, hey, can I give those to you? God says, I got you. I got your back. I can take them. Because if I stay wrapped up in all the things that I have in my life, David Kibble and I were talking about it out in the lobby just before. We're in that sandwich generation, right? Not only am I trying to launch my kids into life, my mom's 84, her mom is 86, her mom has Alzheimer's in the nursing home. We're responsible for all of that. My job is trying to help parents whose kids have substance use issues. If I take all of that on to me and go home and get in that bed and do that midnight marathon, I will never sleep. But if I turn and say, God, I got to give some of this stuff to you. I can't carry all of it. It's too much. God says, I got you. I got you. Why do we pray, Randy? I'm not going to go into it because I'm running out. Paul uses three different words. And it's not that we do things in a certain way. It's that in whatever we do as we walk through life, we have that constant, constant communion and constant communication with God. You like to run? Any runners? <clears throat> Lindsay, you're a runner, right? Aren't both of you runners? Bridget, I'm picking on you today. You're a runner. Nate, do you ever pray when you're running? Is that not the best time when it's quiet? You get up like 2 in the morning, right, and start running like at 3. Yeah, it is legit midnight. Whatever you do that gives you that ability to have that constant communion and talk. You know, I grew up, it was like, if you don't have a prayer closet, where you and Jesus can get in that room alone, you just ain't got a prayer life. And that's what I grew up with. I don't like the closet. I know you don't. <laughs> hey, thank God, don't you love it that we can go to a church where everybody's welcome, everybody's valued, I want to go to a church. Usually I'm not on the receiving end. I'm usually on the end that is doing the joke. Don't you just want to be, though, in a church where everybody can be celebrated and everybody's input and value and talents are loved and appreciated? This guy's unbelievable. And I'm excited that I get to go to church with Jerry and a bunch of other people that years ago that wouldn't have happened. Amen? All right.
And I know I'm really struggling here to get it through. All right. Verse 9. Verse 9. And then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul's making a play. I used to have a professor at Carolina. I took all the religion courses at Carolina when I went back as an adult because I flunked out the first time in college. Um, and those folks, and, and Don Jones used to talk about certain writers in the scriptures, and he'd say they're ding, dangling a couple of Phi Beta Kappa keys you know, in their pocket. Paul is like that. So when he says, we'll guard your hearts and minds, he's using the exact same words for the Roman guards who were guarding the city of Philippi. When you walked around in Philippi every day, you would see these guys dressed up in the military guard because the way that the Roman Empire held things together was through the military conquest and the military coercion. And these guards were ever-present all the time. And what Paul does is he takes that and he turns it around and he says, guess what? If you spend this time in communion with God, whether it's running or cooking or washing the dishes, and you get in this constant communion and communication with God, and that's how you learn to walk through life, then you can be non-reactive. Then you can say, I don't have to get engaged. Then you can remember all of the gifts that are constantly in front of us and understand that God is what? Always working. Because why? Because God is guarding my heart and my mind. And the people that heard that would have said, that's the same word for those guards that guard Philippi. I understand what he's talking about. For us, it would be, hey, there's an M1 tank parked beside your heart. There's an F-18 flying across my heart. There's a Marine standing beside my heart and mind, telling me, Randy, you don't have to get in every argument. You don't have to carry that kind of thing around. You can have joy and peace. You can live a different way. That's the Jesus way. Paul Thigben tells a story <clears throat> of coming home one afternoon and finding the kitchen that he had worked so hard to clean up a total disaster. There were pots. There were pans. There was chocolate smothered all over the cabinets and little chocolate fingerprints all over the refrigerator. Dirty bowls. You name it. And Thigpen writes, needless to say, I was not happy. What I was was really feeling a rage coming up inside me and anxiousness. And then as he looked a little more closely, he saw this little tiny note on the table, clumsily written and smeared with those chocolate fingerprints, and the message said, I'm making something for you, Dad. S-U-M-T-H-I-N. I'm making something for, number four, you, Dad. And it was signed, your angel. Now listen, in our world today, we want to respond. We live in this constant anxiety with the midnight marathons going. It would be so easy to walk into that situation and blow up 
and scream and say, you don't know what my day's been like. I can't understand why somebody would do this. I can't believe I'm coming home to this. You know how much work this is going to give me? All of those things, right? But Thigpen writes, in the midst of this disarray and despite my irritation, joy suddenly sprang up in my heart, sweet and pure. My attention had been redirected from the problem to the girl I love. And then he said, as I encountered her in that brief note, I delighted in her. And with her simple goodness and focus, I could take pleasure in seeing her hand at work in a situation that seemed otherwise disastrous. And then he wrote this. The same is true in the joy of my Lord. Many times my life looks messy. I can't find much to be happy about in my circumstances. If I stop, though. If I look hard enough, I can usually see the Lord at work through it all, and he's making something for me. Let me pray for us. Father, we give you thanks for this day and this time that we have. We live in this <laughs> crazy, anxious world. Lord, I, I just pray for everyone here today. I pray that we will be non-reactive. Lord, I pray that we will lean on you. And Lord, I thank you that you are big enough, good enough, and you love us enough that you can take these things from us, but that we can give them to you. We can pile them up on you, and you're okay with it. Father, let us see all the things around us. Let us see your work in our life. I thank you for that. I thank you for this church. I thank you for all that you have done for us, and I thank you that you're making something for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.